Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. Today, I would like to invite all of our listeners to join my producer Blake and I as we reflect on my recent interview with Robert Zubrin and the future of manned space travel. We'll be breaking our discussion up into two parts, with the second half being released next week. But before we begin today, I'd like to announce a very important piece of space news. For the first time in roughly a decade, American astronauts will be launching into Earth orbit from American soil. The SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule will be departing from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, carrying two astronauts into outer space. And if all goes well, they will press on to the International Space Station. Okay, well, here we are for our after talk. I uh, neglected to mention in uh, the intro that I did for this episode that it is uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin who will be uh, the two American astronauts riding the Crew Dragon capsule into um, low Earth orbit. And then if all goes well, then they will um, dock with the International Space Station as well. So that's very exciting. It's very exciting news and they set it as a they set this date as a target launch date so it could be a subject to change mm-hmm. but it's still um very exciting because we're talking about uh really less than a month from now i also saw that they announced the three nominees of who is going to be the capsule or the company to provide the capsule to land on the moon for project artemis which is pretty exciting as well Yeah, what intrigued me about that, and I just read the article today, so I think I'm correct in saying, I think it's actually going to be two different organizations. One's going to build the ascent stage, and one's going to build the descent stage, and it's going to be the same design as Apollo. Apollo, of course, had, um, they said that the lunar module, or the LEM, was essentially two spacecraft. One spacecraft um, on top where the astronauts uh, were piloting, the LEM down to the surface uh, with the guidance computers and all of that, and then a, a descent stage that would burn as they were going down to land on the surface of the moon. And when they were ready to blast back off, of course, they left that descent stage behind and rocketed back up to uh, lunar orbit. And those descent stages are still on the surface of the moon to this day. And mm-hmm. uh, Lunar explorers or even lunar tourists one day, I think, will uh, be very interested in these sites from the late 1960s, early 1970s, where, I mean, their tools are discarded on the surface. There's astronaut, bags of astronaut feces discarded on the surface. Uh, Maybe that's TMI, but but these these sites that um, I read recently that space archaeology is starting to be a thing because they're uh, it's starting to become this new emerging discipline because there are objects drifting through outer space that were constructed and launched in the 19 1960s certainly perhaps even the uh, late 1950s right 
yeah, that'll be interesting to see what they do, because they're already trying to address, and we brought it up in previous episodes when we didn't have to talk with each other, that there's a problem with uh, space debris and us basically creating our own Dyson sphere of debris keeping us from leaving <laughs> the Earth orbit. Yeah, and th and that's very concerning. And there are people who have come up with a lot of different ideas for how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that's going to happen. We're not going to clean up space, and certainly in low Earth orbit, anytime soon. It's going to be months, if not years, before we take on that that immense undertaking. And I actually talked to someone recently who said, uh, space debris seems like a big problem. It seems like it's everywhere. How is it even possible to travel through space without getting clobbered by all this space debris? And I had to explain, well, the planet Earth is a big place. Mm -hmm. So the uh, space, just 100 miles or 200 miles above the planet Earth, is also a, a great big space. And the mm -hmm. International Space Station is the size of a football field with its solar panels fully deployed and all this. And sometimes the International Space Station does have to boost its orbit and think about space debris. But the thing to remember about space is it's mostly empty space. Yeah, fair. It, it, it makes you think of that, uh, forget what his name is, it's like something slot. The guy who, the young kid who's leading up the big, the great river and ocean cleanup. It's like collect, gathering all the plastic that gets deposited there and trying to turn it into uh, commercial goods that can be used for things. That's fantastic. And I, yeah. I would love to see, I'm not 100% familiar with that character or that real life human being, mm -hmm. but I would love to see that sort of person for uh, 21st century space junk cleanup. I think that would be amazing. I actually, I've got some other notes here that I wanted to uh, mention really quick regarding space news and uh, our, po our podcast, but I wanted to say before I forgot, uh, I read some very interesting things about uh, specifically Robert Zubrin in the interview that uh, I did with him for our program. He said that he would recommend that SpaceX take something smaller to the surface of Mars. In, in other words, smaller than the proposed Starship, which is a very, very large, sizable vehicle. Mm -hmm. And that Robert Zubrin, I think the main point where Dr. Robert Zubrin uh, disagrees with Elon Musk is about landing Starships on the moon, mm -hmm. which SpaceX has said, oh yeah, definitely we'll be landing Starships on the moon in the probably very near future. And he talked about uh, an impingement plume was the word that he used. And this is basically that there's uh, all this uh, very fine-grained dust all over the lunar surface, and the moon doesn't have any air that the dust can get caught up in, right. but the moon does have very low gravity. And so in this very low gravity, when dust gets blown up by a rocket engine, it, it flies everywhere. It can right. still get ejected up into... Uh, going to say up into the air, but that's a, a term that we use on Earth about the, you know, there's really no atmosphere to speak of yeah. on the moon for the most part. But he was talking about something that I thought was very interesting where he said the escape velocity on the moon, escape velocity, you know, if you understand physics, is what is required for something to break free from the gravity of a planet or moon right. and hurtle out into outer space, that the escape velocity on the moon is actually so low 
that we're talking about a vehicle as large and powerful as the Starship could be ejecting lunar dust out into outer space, out into the cosmos, mm -hmm. to the point where it could become a actually a problem for hmm. spacecraft in lunar orbit to have visibility or, you know, these tiny little pieces of particulates striking spacecraft. Um, things like that, that it was it was very interesting because... It's like brownout when you're when you're scuba diving that you want to make sure not to kick up too much sediment when you're uh, like cave diving. Yeah, because otherwise you can brown yourself out and not be able to see upside down or wherever anything is. I have to say that I have always dreamt of going into outer space and I wouldn't mind taking a submarine to the bottom of the ocean. But there are some hard limits that I think I have, even as someone who I would consider myself very adventurous, even though I don't go on that many adventures. I'm not a base jumper or a skydiver or anything like that. But I'm very adventurous and yet cave diving. I've seen some documentaries on cave diving that really gave me pause and made me say, I'm not so sure I would want to go cave diving, even if the opportunity presented no, itself. No, Because you're squeezing through, like, manhole-sized crevices for like football field lengths just going right uh the most disturbing documentary that i think i ever saw on cave diving was uh, a documentary where they're in the cave it was made in the early 2000s they're in the cave and they're swimming by uh, a human skeleton with like a mask and like a wetsuit on and they're like well he was too far back into the cave for anybody to risk retrieving his body so we just kind of left him there. And it's kind of, it's a little bit like Mount Everest where they're just right. kind of landmarks at a certain point where, where it's like, oh, we're halfway to the top because this yeah. has got to be the corpse of so-and-so. The only difference is that because Everest is so cold, all the corpses are intact. Whereas at the bottom of the <laughs> ocean, like all the animals are feeding off of them. Yeah, it's a little bit morbid. <laughs> it's, it's very morbid. Bit, it's a little bit morbid. Um, but I think we're, I think we're actually... Very fortunate that outer space is not, in fact, uh, littered with human bodies because yeah. uh, human space travel is a very, very precarious uh, exercise. And there were even uh, discussions, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure someone had discussions during the Apollo era, uh, particularly with Apollo 8. Mm -hmm. Apollo 8 was a mission that was, what should I say, it was a big gamble mm -hmm. because... Human beings had only had human beings had never flown on the Saturn V before, and human beings had only flown on the Apollo Command Module once, and that was the Apollo Seven mission that came right before Apollo Eight. And then NASA had this bold announcement where they're like, "We're going to try to send a command module all the way to the moon." Hmm. We tested it in low Earth orbit once, seemed like everything was okay. We're going to send it to the moon now, and they're were discussions, and there were discussions about Apollo 11 where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were landing on the moon, uh, about if astronauts die there, then there's always going to be this reminder mm. that astronauts died there. And there's this permanent reminder up in the skies that this very tragic incident happened. And I, while I can kind of agree with that to some extent, I also feel like today we're so far, we're so far removed from the Apollo program that it, it's almost like and i think i think we should always remember the astronauts and the heroes that died in the pursuit of space exploration that that's a very important legacy but i don't think anybody walks around we're here in the state of washington uh both you and i 
uh, at one point lived in the state of Colorado. And I don't think people walk around the state of Colorado thinking to themselves, oh, think of all the homesteaders or the settlers or the Native Americans that once lived on this land. Oh, gosh, so much, so much death and and human suffering. I can't even walk through this beautiful landscape because I I am so distracted Mm -hmm. by the human grief and suffering that takes place that the reality of conquering any new frontier is that it's very hard to do and it involves great hardship and sometimes loss of of human life. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't think that's something that we should be callous about or cavalier about, but I also think that's something that we, we do need to accept that at at some point uh, on the moon or Mars, you know, human, human beings may die in the pursuit of space travel, just as it, just as they have died pursuing many different, uh, frontiers in human history just as they've died exploring many new lands and that's it's a question of whether or not we're willing to accept the the risks i think yeah and death is kind of a difficult topic to bring up right now given like how many people are dying from this covid thing but then sure how long after this are we going to remember all of those souls that were lost and be mindful of that and how will that affect our societal behavior i think that's a tie-in that is that is very important because covid19 it's been been very controversial i think ben shapiro conservative commentator ben shapiro recently uh caught a lot of outrage quite frankly Mm -hmm. because he said something along the lines of uh people very elderly people dying from COVID-19 is not really the same thing as uh, a young person dying. I don't want to, I don't want to misquote him, but there's something along those lines that seemed uh, rather callous and other people, you know, he, he's not the first person to mention this or to right. utter this sentiment. And I don't want this to, to be a COVID-19 podcast because no. the whole world is thinking about it and the whole world is preoccupied with it. And I think some people just need a break. But what I would say is, t- is tying into that, you know, with, with space travel is, you know, how callous should we be about human beings that are, have sacrificed their lives in the pursuit of space travel? Well, all of the Apollo astronauts and the Gemini astronauts and the Mercury astronauts that came before them realized that it was uh, a precarious and difficult and dangerous mm-hmm. uh, endeavor. Right. And, and, and I found a great quote. I wish I'd written it down and had it somewhere, but we I mentioned it in our Space Race podcast where Gus Grissom, who you might recall, would later die in the Apollo 1 fire during a routine test inside this command module that had all these design flaws during a routine test and he was quoted years before as saying uh at some point, we're going to run headlong into the law of averages, and somebody's going to have to die. But he was a military test pilot. Right. So for a military test pilot not to have that view would just be a level of, of hubris mm-hmm. and arrogance. And um, it would just be you'd be living in a fantasy land if you were a military test pilot for all those years and then said, oh, well, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And nobody's, nobody could possibly die during the pursuit of this endeavor. And one of the things that Rob, uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin said to me that I thought was very interesting was 
uh, I was talking about, I said, some of these Apollo missions were extremely dangerous. And he said, he said, yeah, well, they were military test pilots and they knew the risk and nobody drafted them to do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody forced them against their will to do it. They elected to take on this mantle. And of course it meant celebrity and fame and all of these other things, but they knew it was dangerous. Well, and for some of them, it was not like, I think this was occurring concurrently with the Vietnam War. So it was risky, but it probably not as risky as running missions over Vietnam. There's a great interview with uh, Gene Cernan, who was famously the last man on the moon and has been for many decades. He has since passed away, but I believe it was an interview with Gene, uh, Eugene Cernan where he said, trying to think about it, that he was talking to fellow pilots who had flown missions over North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he talked to those fellow pilots and he said, I actually feel a deep sense of guilt that I'm an astronaut right now and you guys are serving in combat. And the test pilots, if I'm recalling the interview correctly, they said to Gene Cernan, they said, no, we think what you're doing is even more valuable hmm. Because this is something that the country can feel good about. Right. There's it's, hope in that endeavor. <laughs> the country's not bitterly divided about uh, people landing on the moon, right. necessarily. Some people are more enthused about it than others. But the country, you know, nobody's protesting in the streets or rioting mm -hmm. in the streets over people landing on the moon. Yeah. So it, it was just different perspectives and how, you know, how you want to perceive it. I think my own father is a Vietnam veteran. And he made a comment once when I was watching the movie Apollo 13 as a kid. And he said, yeah, the whole world was really, really worried about whether they're going to bring back those three guys alive on that mission to the moon. But uh, I wonder how much they were worrying about us walking around in the jungles right. during, during the Vietnam War, where many, many, many more people perished during the Vietnam War than during the Apollo mission. Probably more so during the Vietnam War because they had actual media coverage of the war than you do in current day wars because it all just kind of happens. Yeah, and I, I, so I think that there's a very important question, and everybody has to decide this for themselves, is every person, every family, every culture has to decide for themselves, how do we view human life and how do we acknowledge that there are things in this world that are so, so important that we should be willing to risk human life. Mm -hmm. Not needlessly or carelessly, but there are endeavors so important that it may involve the sacrifice of human life. And I think exploring new frontiers and exploring space, I think that is such an endeavor. Yeah, but the, the question that you brought up about, it's part of what might become space policy sure in saying how to treat the dead because on long journeys like going to mars you're dealing with a six-month process where very well could be people to pass away on the journey going there and so do you cremate everybody because you you certainly don't want to make little mini asteroids of corpses that are yeah out in the gosh this took a very morbid turn yeah <laughs> uh yeah, that's that's definitely something to consider. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of astronauts and cosmonauts that are very selfless who would say, 
I want to do whatever is best for the mission and particularly whatever is safest for my fellow astronauts to get home safely. Mm -hmm. If we want to go down this rabbit hole, I do want to get back to my notes here in in a second, but if we do want to go down this rabbit hole, I saw an interview with, uh, once again, I'm a a big fan of uh, Eugene Cernan. Mm -hmm. I think he's, he stands out for being the last man on the moon, but he talked about, uh, he actually has a book, which I have uh, on the shelf over there in our little podcast studio, uh, where he talks about being a, an astronaut on the Gemini program, where I believe he was the second person, if you can imagine this, the second person to do a spacewalk, mm-hmm. uh, or the second American, rather, to, to do a spacewalk. I think he was really like the third person, because you have Alexei Lanov, who's the first human in history to float around in the void of space in a spacesuit outside of his spacecraft. Then you have uh, American astronaut Ed White, who on a Gemini mission floated around in outer space outside his capsule. Ed White, things went pretty well. Alexei Lanov, he almost died uh, during the process. Mm. So there was some awareness this was a dangerous, dangerous gamble to you know, to be floating in zero gravity, to be in this bulky suit, and to be like tethered to your craft but not really have any control. Right. And astronaut Ed White had a little gun that shot jets of gas, but it was far from it was far from perfect to mm-hmm. control himself floating around in the void of space. And astronaut Gene Cernan talked about trying to hold on to, to his tether. And it was a it was a secure tether, but he was trying to hold on to this tether as he was floating in outer space. And then he like would pull himself towards the vehicle and mm-hmm. then get tangled in the tether. And he said it was like wrestling with an octopus. And uh, Gene Cernan said that the the commander of his mission, he was not the commander. He was in the Gemini missions. The person to go out and do the spacewalk was not the commander. So the commander mm-hmm. was there and someone pulled him aside right before they went out to the launch pad and launched into space and like whispered something in the commander's ear. And the commander came back, and Gene Cern said, what was all that about? And the commander said, oh, it's nothing to worry about. It's just something routine. And Gene Cernan said, later on, he found out that the that someone at NASA, don't remember, it was probably someone important at NASA, mm-hmm. had uh, whispered in the commander's ear, if something happens to him and he is irretrievable mm-hmm. and he has died or he's had a stroke, or he just can't get back into the capsule. Mm-hmm. Getting back into the capsule was a problem with Alexei right. Lanov. Uh, then he said, you're going to have to cut him loose. Wow. And push the push the corpse out into outer space. You're going to have to do that because as much as we would like to bring back Eugene Cernan, well, we don't want you taking off your seatbelt, climbing out, trying mm-hmm. to do an EVA yourself. To bring a corpse back inside the vehicle and perhaps floating away yourself or getting into some sort of perilous trouble where and and the other thing they said was he's tethered to the vehicle. So the idea that you're going to reenter the Earth's atmosphere with this this human corpse tethered to your vehicle, mm-hmm. trailing that behind you as you encounter the intense heat and pressures of that's that's an insane. It's yeah. not the responsible thing to do. So the responsible thing to do is to close the hatch. Cut. Gene Cernan loose. And uh, that that was something that... So I applaud him for being able to talk about 
yeah. in very open terms rather than saying my Gemini flight was a success. My flight to the moon was a success. NASA is great. Everything is awesome. And space flight is just going to be this glorious upward trajectory for human beings where now nobody will ever get hurt. He could have said that. But instead, he was like, I'm going to be open and honest in my autobiography about what my experience was. These are also military men, you know, so they probably had the, the switch within themselves to say, like, you know, I can turn off my feelings and run a mission if if things become necessary. I'll deal with the that emotional part later. Absolutely. So Absolutely. And that's... That's good and and that's bad. You yeah, know, it's probably bad for your uh, interpersonal relationships in day to day life, but probably very good for your ability to accomplish the mission. Yep. So in uh, in looking at my notes here, this is also a big piece of space news, and I mentioned at the beginning of our program in the little introduction that we did, uh, it's big news that we're launching human beings from American soil again. That's absolutely huge, and I think right. that's that's front page. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think it's also important news, but it wasn't necessarily as exciting to me personally as the fact that we're finally launching astronauts from American soil again. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is, uh, a recent cryo test by SpaceX where, All right, um, yeah. and so this is, uh, SN4 was the prototype that they, uh, the name of the prototype that they were talking about. And SN4 is basically that they've had three other prototypes that have failed these cryo tests. And cryo tests are basically uh, consist of filling up the fuel tank in the starship to the starship to full pressure and uh, three times that has ended that has ended pretty disastrously. Mm-hmm. There's one video that I saw was the second to last test where it kind of got crushed like a tin can, kind yeah. of imploded in the process. And so we and of course we mentioned that in our episode is that the development of Starship has been fraught with difficulty. But I wanted to give credit where credit is due because since our release of that episode, uh, SN4, the latest prototype, has passed the cryo test. And that's uh, passed with flying colors. And that's very exciting. And it clears clears the way for the next step. And I don't ever want to sound like I'm anti-Elon Musk in any of the podcasts that we do. I have my own thoughts, views, and opinions, which well, are probably, I'm probably just as opinionated as Elon Musk himself. He's he's a human being. He's all over the place, because lately he's not doing a whole lot of good for himself on Twitter. But, um, well, yeah. So, I, I, I don't I don't know. I, and he's very bad about Twitter. I thought it was interesting that, uh, talking to Robert Zubrin about this, uh, he said, I asked him, I, I said, when do you think we'll land human beings on Mars? I said, maybe there'll be some setbacks. Maybe there'll be some really serious setbacks, but when is it actually going to happen, in in your view, if you had to predict? And one of the things that he said was, well, he said, these sorts of vehicles are very dangerous. God forbid we could have some sort of a routine test where mm-hmm. there is loss of life. And I think that goes with anything in the space industry, if you're trying to predict some sort of timeline, is that will set you back. Hmm. For over a year, I believe, after the Apollo 1 fire, we didn't send astronauts into space. And that was a very, obviously, a very serious tragedy. And we wanted to go back and take a very serious look at the vehicle. So that was one thing that he said. And it was very interesting to see Dr. Robert Zubrin pivot and say, or 
he could get in trouble with the FCC for being on Twitter right, right. and saying something and getting in trouble for saying something. And it was so funny that really on the same tiers was, oh, well, you could have catastrophic loss of vehicle and loss of life. Or he might just say something on Twitter yep. that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I laughed because I was thinking of Austin Powers when they're going prepositions A through G were a complete failure, but preparation H. Preparation H. Was, our, was, was a success. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one other piece of space news, very big deal, is that China is going to launch their first uh, spacecraft to Mars. And they've already landed a spacecraft on the moon, and that was that was a big achievement. Landed or crashed? No, see, they have landed a rover, and I believe they landed it on the far side of the moon. Okay. And I believe Jade Rabbit was its name. I'm so bad at keeping track of all these details, right. and I want to. I don't ever want to mislead our listeners out there, you guys. But yeah, I think it will be June or July. They're going to launch the spacecraft with a rover to mars hmm. and that's a that's a, the kind of thing where i believe india has a spacecraft that india's, is well, well, yeah okay so I'll, I'll i'll break it down for you yeah. because there have been some re- recent spacecraft crashes on the moon right so india has sent uh, an orbital spacecraft to mars and i think that's that's actually a, a big step but the united states of america is the only country to have had complete and total success in landing spacecraft on the surface of Mars and returning back data. Right. The Soviet Union had a successful, actually the first successful spacecraft landing on Mars, where they landed a spacecraft on Mars, but I don't think they were able to get any data returned Hmm. from that craft. There was some sort of malfunction that had taken place, but they believed that it actually had landed... Safely. And just landing safely on the surface of Mars is a big, big deal. Right. That's such an accomplishment. Right. But uh, that being said, just landing safely on the surface of the moon is a big accomplishment. And I cannot understate that fact. And we think of space travel as becoming something that is routine. It's something that we're all going to be doing as safely as air travel. And air travel is actually very safe. Air travel is actually safer than travel by car. When in normal conditions throughout the world. If you're thinking about (laughs) the safety of the vehicle and not whatever you might catch while on the airplane. Anyway, I digress. So, Israel and India have both attempted to land robotic spacecraft on the moon and failed. And Mm. both have failed, you know, very recently, the, these are bits of space news that go back uh, maybe a year, maybe less than a mm-hmm. year. So that those are relatively recent occurrences by countries that are very, I would say, very competent in terms of technology, industry, mm-hmm. and very serious about their space programs as well, I would argue. And that shows you just how dangerous it is to land on the mm-hmm. moon. And it, going back to what I said before, just how dangerous it was trying to land humans on the moon. Right. And how it's surprising to me that either in orbit around the moon or on the surface of the moon, there are no human corpses. There are no people who tried and failed. There were people who ran into 
some very, very serious problems in the process. Right. Uh, right off the top of my head, Apollo 13 is one that everybody knows about, largely because of the Tom Hanks movie. But Apollo 8 was one that was just, it was rushed. They were worried that the United States would be beaten to lunar orbit mm -hmm. by the Soviet Union. So that was a problem that they were contending with, that they didn't want the Soviet Union to say, we got to the moon first, but you right. landed on the moon first. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a tie. So Apollo 8, nothing really catastrophic happened on Apollo 8, to my knowledge, although the commander was throwing up and feeling like terribly ill. So you could right. say that, that that's actually pretty mm -hmm. a dangerous situation to be in. But all of that being said, Apollo 8 wouldn't be necessarily one that would make the list, but it'd be close to making the list. Apollo 9, dangerous but fairly routine. Apollo 10, you had a lunar module. They were just testing the lunar module in orbit around the moon. And it went spinning uncontrollably. Right. Uh, and they said if they had not regained control of the vehicle. I believe it was uh, John Young who was command module. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> now, now this is like a pop quiz right. of my space knowledge. But uh, you had Apollo 10, two astronauts. And I believe. All right. Well, I'm not going to say. But. I believe you had two Apollo astronauts, and they said pretty decisively if, if the vehicle had continued tumbling for 10 or 15 seconds mm -hmm. more, you wouldn't have been able to recover from that and mm -hmm. ultimately would have led to two American astronauts crashing on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. So there's Apollo 10. Mm -hmm. There's the historic Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin were running desperately low on fuel as they're trying right. to land and they were way off course when they landed and there's right. a guidance computer malfunction then there is apollo 12 where the saturn V rocket was struck by lightning while leaving the launch pad <laughs> and that can that caused a lot of equipment to fail wow. inside the command module and they were able to famously pull that out at the last minute and they didn't have to have an abort of the saturn V because mm. it was a it was the effect of the lightning striking the vehicle rather than the vehicle being uh, catastrophically ready right. to fail. Then you have, of course, Apollo 13, which we all know. Mm -hmm. And then some other like mishaps along the way. But right. my, my list of really dangerous missions, you had Apollo 8, Apollo 10, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, mm -hmm. Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. All very narrowly avoided what could have been dire and fatal situations in outer space. And it's a testament to the astronauts that they were able to find success and to not have well, a catastrophic failure. And the engineering, too. Because, I mean... Oh, and the engineering, too. And, and so the, any fault in the, the engineering, like the guidance computer failing or whatever... Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it, and or even the Apollo 1 fire, a lot of it was just a reflection of the fact that we had a very tight deadline right. that we were trying to meet, the end of the decade end of the decade deadline, and everybody was pushing themselves to do things as quickly as possible mm -hmm. while also being concerned about 
crew safety and vehicle safety. And that's that's a tough position to be in. And it's very much the position that Elon Musk is in right now, where he's pushing right. for things to happen as quickly as they can possibly happen without any delay. Yeah. And that that makes me, I think Elon Musk is very concerned about safety. And I think, I think, and I hope, and I pray that the launch of the Crew Dragon capsule in May, if it's done in May or if it's done later, will be a roaring success. And I, I to astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin, I would just say Godspeed. And we both wish the best. Amen. For, yeah. for their flight. But I don't know what the future holds. And the, the Apollo 1 fire showed us that the American public and Congress and lots of different people who were involved saw that catastrophe and said, gosh, this is so heartbreaking that I'm starting to have thoughts about whether or not this is all worth it. Because yeah. it's a very high price to pay. And yet, those those men, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, those three men paved the way for human beings to explore new worlds. And I think it would have been even worse for those men and their memory and their families had we not gone on to the moon oh, yeah. and landed Certainly. human beings in the moon. Had we just wrapped things up and said, it's all too dangerous and the best thing to do is just to end things right here and give up, that would have been worse for their legacies. And today there are three hills, um, hills, mounts, whatever you want to call them, geographical features on mm -hmm. Mars named uh, Grissom, White, and Chaffee. Mm. Well, it's it's not within the human ideal either to fail and then to quit. Like, you fail, you learn from your failure and move on. It's not. Yeah, that's fair. But there are as many historical examples as we have right. of people trying and failing, trying and failing. There are other historical examples of people trying, failing, and deciding the cost was too great right. financially or otherwise and backing off. And history is full of those stories, too, unfortunately. Right, right. Uh, so... China, if they succeed in landing a rover on Mars, that'll be a big deal. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I just wanted to, if there's there are people who are still listening to our YouTube video who have made it this far, I wanted to say that we're getting into doing YouTube videos, but this the YouTube format is very new, but the podcasting thing is something that we've been doing for a long time. So this interview with Robert Zubrin, and this most recent series on the planet Mars that we did is our second series on the planet Mars. We've been doing these podcasts uh, for a long time, and if you go to universeuniversity.space, there's a what I think is a rich body of work there, particularly if you're a, a layman, a layperson, who doesn't know a whole lot about the history of space exploration. And one of the reasons I don't talk about Elon Musk a lot on our podcast is that <laughs> We're so focused on history right. and, and what is the context for where we have been before we got to where we are now. The half century, more than a half century really, of human space exploration. And how do we understand current events through the lens of context that we get with events from our historical past? Mm -hmm. And the other thing ties into what I just mentioned Events with SpaceX change day to day. So we released an episode where uh, just an audio podcast where we we said 
the development of this starship thing has really been fraught with difficulty right. and uh, we've now had three cryo tests that have ended pretty pretty terribly right and a week week and a half after we put out that episode you have this news that no it's successful and now we're moving on to the next step so i think that's that's very exciting yeah very exciting um do you want to move into kind of addressing the side of the the article he sent just going piece by piece because i had a, a little breakdown of how i wanted to do that sure so to catch all of you up i sent my producer blake an article that was a little bit pessimistic in tone and it was uh, human beings will never colonize right. mars it was actually an article that i read several weeks ago so i don't have the article memorized but i thought it was it was interesting food for thought. And basically what I would say about Elon Musk, I I admire his ambition. And very it might very well be that within my lifetime, we have vast cities sprawling across the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. And my skepticism and anybody else's skepticism will be seen as unfounded, short-sighted, and any number of other things. So I want to make that concession, but I also want to go on record as saying something that I alluded to in our audio podcast, and that is mm-hmm. that I don't think we're going to have a city with a million people on the surface of Mars. I don't think I said it quite that bluntly in in the audio mm-hmm. podcast, in the audio presentation. At all, you're saying? I don't think we're going to have a city of a million people on Mars. I don't think we're going to have a city of 500,000 people on Mars, and mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to have that in 2050. I don't think that we're going to have that in 2075. And I don't think we're going to have that in 2100. Now, what I said in the episode explicitly, and this is something that I do stand by, is that if we had a McMurdo station on the surface of Mars with a thousand people Mm -hmm. or a few hundred people Mm -hmm. on the surface of Mars, that would be the biggest accomplishment in the history of space exploration. And Elon Musk, if it was done by Elon Musk and SpaceX, they would deserve all the credit for that. And that would be fantastic. But I'm concerned by this bizarre idea that Elon Musk has that, well, we're going to go and we're going to, you know, the first landing, we're just going to be, that's going to be us setting up what we need for the colony. And he has these presentations where there's a little bit of a, I say a time lapse, not really time lapse photography, but a timeline on the video where there are these beautiful animated, you know, computer generated pictures of the base getting bigger and bigger and like vast giant greenhouses that look like jungles inside of glass bubbles mm-hmm. and these these very elaborate things that you're seeing in regards to his uh, Mars exploration plan and I think the other thing that bothers me about it is Robert Zubrin and Elon Musk share the dream of gl- going to Mars, right? Right. <clears throat> but Robert Zubrin had a very pragmatic vision. Excuse me. His pragmatic vision that he pitched to NASA was, under NASA's existing budget right now, we can get a vehicle and four astronauts Mm -hmm. to Mars. And that was more or less what uh, Werner von Braun and his team were imagining and wanting to do, was to send a preliminary exploration mission to poke around on the surface to look for life and it would be extraordinary just as it was extraordinary to get two human beings on the moon in 1969 right 
Uh, but so Robert Zubrin pitches this idea and says, we have the exist using the existing technology that we have or technology that could be easily developed if we made the investment. Let's send four astronauts to the surface of Mars and let's give them, you know, a year to 18 months to explore the surface in earnest mm -hmm. and check things out and primarily to look for life. Right. That would be huge. That would be enormous. And I think if that had been Elon Musk's goal, we'd have astronauts on the surface of Mars right now. I think we would have had multiple missions to the surface of Mars. But Elon Musk has a goal that's it's very different and much more ambitious. Right. And in my opinion, I think just getting astronauts to Mars, it's been such a long and difficult road just to muster getting astronauts to land on the surface of Mars, look for life, do real science, mm -hmm. and return them safely to Earth. That is something that at least when you talk to Robert Zubrin, when you look at uh, the Von Braun plan, something that could have been done in the 1980s that mm. we still haven't done yet. And for me, it's like, let's just go and do it already. Right. Whereas uh, Elon Musk is like, no, but I want to be the savior of humanity. Right. And uh, so he, what he wants is to develop these vehicles that can fit 50 or 100 right. people. And then to develop hundreds of them and to make them as reliable as commercial airliners. And by the way, I don't know I don't know how you would say that they were as reliable as commercial airliners because we've been flying commercial airliners for so long. I wouldn't get on the first flight of the first commercial airliner, right. fly on it, land successfully, and then say, well, I guess that proves it that commercial airliners will be this percentage of have this percentage of reliability and safety. I would just come to the conclusion that, well, this is a new and dangerous vehicle, and this flight seems to have been successful. So the the commercial application analogy to this would be electric cars. And, of course, Elon is involved with that as well. Sure. But Toyota said, we'll make electric cars, but we're also going to put engines in them as well. They can't be 100% electric. And Elon said, nope. They're going to be 100% electric, and that's right. just what they're going to be, and and that's what's going to work. And people thought he was crazy. And, um, I mean, there have been mishaps along the way, and it's taken a little bit longer than whatever he projected, but the 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 byproduct that's coming out of Tesla Motors is I had it a, is. I had an Uber driver who picked me up in a Tesla once. I said, how do you like driving a Tesla? And he said to me with absolute conviction, he was, he was an older guy too, so I imagine he had owned a few mm -hmm. different cars in his life. He said, once you drive one, you will never want to drive or buy any other car right. ever again. Mm. And so, yeah, that's that's an immense feat that Elon Musk has pulled off. And, it, you know, it's, to, to your point, it's like, well, people thought that Tesla wasn't going to work out either. Well, it's a mentality that I'm getting into. So, like, I'm not going to take half measures. Because half measures breed bureaucracy in a lot of ways. It's like, well, you did that last time. We'll just do a couple little fixes here and there. Sure. It'll still be a half measure, but it'll be a step up. Whereas you, if you just say, I'm going to go the full Monty, you can work on the actual aircraft you want to make instead of working on several other models to yeah. try to get to that. And there, there's a lot that I think about, of course. You interview someone like Robert Zubrin. Mm-hmm. 
listen to the interview, think about the interview, weeks go by and you're like, oh, I wish it, I wish I could have asked him this or this because right, now right. this is coming to my mind. But something very interesting about the Apollo program, for instance, was that Werner von Braun wanted to build one giant vehicle that was going to be 50, 60, 70 feet tall mm-hmm. that was going to be like a small building that he was going to land on the moon and it would have the parachutes for when you you went back to earth later on and parachuted down and to the splashdown phase on earth it would have the heat shield for when you re-entered the earth's atmosphere it would have all the equipment needed to like land on the moon and gather rocks on the moon and etc etc and it was a very obscure engineer named john hobolt who said maybe the most efficient and best way to do this is to not not to have one giant vehicle, but to have two smaller vehicles. And it was done with two smaller vehicles. Mm. It was lunar orbit rendezvous. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, Robert Zubrin's plan, Mars Direct, which he authored in 1989, was like Apollo in that he said, we'll send one vehicle to land on the surface of Mars unmanned. And it will produce all of its fuel from the Martian atmosphere, and then it will be there when the crewed vehicle arrives with a set of astronauts who will eventually take that Earth return vehicle back to Earth. Mm -hmm. So that was Robert Zubrin's idea of doing Apollo, more or less, for Mars. Right. And the added advantage of Apollo... I don't know how much this was discussed beforehand, but I think it was acknowledged beforehand that the advantage of Apollo is if you have two spacecraft docked together and something goes terribly wrong with one of the craft, you have a lifeboat. Yeah. You, you have this additional craft there. And that was one of the reasons that Von Braun wanted to send fleets of vehicles, two vehicles or four vehicles or ten vehicles, you know, an armada of spacecraft going to Mars with 50 or 100 people on board because then if something goes terribly wrong... At the very least, you might be able to transfer some crew oh, from, from one vehicle into another. And during the Apollo 13 mission, the command module suffered an explosion and was venting oxygen out hmm. into space. But they were like, we have this lunar module here. We can take all three guys, put them in there. There's breathing oxygen. There's a means to keep them alive while we figure out hmm. what to do and how to you know, solve the situation. So it's it's a safety issue having two vehicles. It's a weight issue mm-hmm. having two vehicles. It's a complexity issue, right. you know, two vehicles. Because you think of all the systems, like guidance systems for landing on the moon on the lunar module, but systems for re-entering the Earth's atmosphere on the command right. module. So you end up with something, and you know, it's going to be a tremendously complex vehicle if you try to combine all of that. And von Braun was like Elon Musk, was a genius. And he said, no, we can do it my way, and we can get astronauts to the moon, and this will be fine. And we might have done it Von Braun's way, if not for John Hobolt. And John Hobolt, by the way, was not just a guy with a good idea. He was a guy with a good idea who was very aggressive about promoting that idea. Yeah. Where he he was annoying a lot of people and frustrating a lot of, the pe- a lot of people to the point where Von Braun himself looked at looked him in the eyes and said, cut the lunar rendezvous crap. <laughs> because he's like, I know you're all about lunar orbit rendezvous. He's like, 
cut that crap out. We don't we don't want to hear about it. We're doing it this way, and this is the way we're going to do it. Right. And eventually, von Braun was a guy who came around to the idea and finally came out publicly and endorsed it, and that mm-hmm. was... So, getting back to the article that you sent me, uh, it was talking about the, the limitations as to... And they're, they're like, they wanted to be bombastic. So they said, we'll never go to Mars. It's never going to happen. There will never be a colony there. Yeah, and, and the title what the title was, to, to your point, we will never have a colony on Mars. Now, I think there's an important distinction to be made there where they said we will never have a colony on Mars. Right. It wasn't we'll never send human beings to Mars. Right. Or even that we'll never have an outpost on Mars. And so I think the distinction, and they do talk about Antarctica, and we talk about Antarctica extensively in mm-hmm. our little audio podcast, uh, was Antarctica, we have lots of bases in Antarctica, but there's nothing that resembles a city in Antarctica. And we don't have a city with a million people in Antarctica. Right. So it does seem a little bit strange to say that, well, we'll never do that in Antarctica on the planet Earth, but we're definitely going to do it in Mars in just a couple decades. So... I wanted to go through, I made a list of facets, pieces of the puzzle that would sure. be limitations uh, that I think restrict us from doing that. Um, the very first being the obvious, that just actually getting there. Um, we don't have a spacecraft, we haven't tested a spacecraft that could, or a starship of that type to be able to go that long. A lot of this is contingent on whether or not Elon Musk's SpaceX Starship will be, A, a successful, viable Mm -hmm. spacecraft, which I think it will be, and then, B, whether he meets his incredibly ambitious goal of it being as reliable as an airliner. Right. Of just zipping, uh, having hundreds of them zipping back and forth all the time and performing marvelously. Right. And the thing that that worries me about that is if you had... These skeleton crews going to Mars, exploring for a year and a half, coming back to Earth, reporting what they had learned, you know, maybe going to Mars, taking some cargo, taking some supplies to Mars, setting up some solar panels, just kind of very gradually seeing what Mm -hmm. we could do with the planet. And Elon Musk was like, I hope, you know, my grandchildren's legacy will be a city on Mars with a million people. I would be like, that sounds plausible. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like Jamestown, which was the first, hmm. I wouldn't say the first city in North America, because it certainly wasn't a European fort. city. It was a fort. It was an outpost. It was like it was like an outpost in Antarctica, like a small outpost in Antarctica. Right. McMurdo uh, Station is a large outpost in Antarctica, mm-hmm. but a small outpost in North America. Mm-hmm. And it's the distinction between a colony, right. a city... Or something else, which mm-hmm. is, you know, an outpost, a fort, a base, right. base of operations, base camp, whatever you want right. to call it. So, But this is all under the assumption that we actually get there. I'm, 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 right. I'm, I'm laying my, my bullet point on just there being a craft to get us to Mars. Well, and resupply is a that's, that's, consideration, that, that'll too. That'll okay. come up next. I'll, so, stop, I'll stop cutting you off. Yeah, so the next is fuel, because one of the biggest contingencies is that we use the moon to be able to refuel the starship as it's going to mars uh there have been discussions about just refueling starships in earth orbit 
where we okay. get to Earth orbit, we just refuel them there, and then they they head out to Mars. Okay, that's one way to do it. Uh, I think in the past, just to excuse me, just to clarify, mm -hmm. in the past there have been a lot of plans, particularly the Space Exploration Initiative, where they talked about launching spaceships off the surface of the moon to go to Mars right. or fueling them, either fueling them at a great big space station in Earth orbit. Right. Or fueling them on the moon and then launching them from the moon. Or space all station the, around the moon. Exactly. Yeah. All these elaborate steps. Mm -hmm. And so my understanding of Elon Musk's plan, in its at least in its current uh, iteration, is that it would be easy enough to launch the starship into low Earth orbit, refuel the starship, and then launch it to Mars. And that it's just that simple. Yeah. So let's go under the assumption that we've gotten to Mars. We have a fort there, some, a scientific outbase. Some, some kind of habitat. How do we get all of the things, the supplies that they're going to need there? So the logistics, you're looking at food, uh, oxygen, supplies, getting more people out there. Well, so with a starship, that's going to be an enormous craft. So the question is, especially if you have a lot of them, is you could have a starship that has 10 people on board and a very large payload sure. of a whole bunch of different things. Or you could have a starship that has mm -hmm. Robert Zubrin tends to say 50. Mm -hmm. I think it would be more comfortable for 50. But five zero people, that, that's a lot that's of people. That's a lot of people. Um, and then those people need food and they need right. consumables because it takes months to well, get there. They're consumables. You know, they go away. There's a finite supply. And so eventually at some sure. point you're going to have to make a plan send out another but if but if you have 10 starships that are as reliable as airplanes mm. then within a very short span of time you could send 10 of these craft mm. two of which would have like skeleton crews and one of which would have like 50 60 75 people on board so is the launch window not as tight to send to mars as it is to send to the moon so i always i i think i recall a number of like every two years you open up a window to send an aircraft to Mars from Earth. A spacecraft? Spacecraft. <laughs> there aren't any aircraft that are yeah, Mars. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, being pedantic. Yeah. Um, yes. We can send astronauts to the moon much more frequently than we can send them to Mars. Oh, okay. So the interesting thing about Mars is there's a very iconic uh, moment in the movie Apollo 13 mm -hmm. where Jim Lovell... Uh, this is this is true in the movie, just as much as it is true in history. Jim Lovell receives the news that they're going to swap out Ken Mattingly, who is the character that Gary Sinise plays. Right. That command module pilot Ken Mattingly will be replaced by the backup crew member who is, uh, what was his name? Um, Jack Swagger. Mm, okay. Yeah. Portrayed by Kevin Bacon. Right. And so he says... You want to break up my crew two days before the launch, mm -hmm. we, when we can predict each other's moves and read the tone of each other's voices. He's very upset right. by this. And people have asked, people have asked me, why couldn't they just wait until Ken Mattingly like, got better? If they thought he was going to get sick, if they thought he was going to get the measles, right. and they didn't want to fly him on the plane, why, why, why couldn't they just wait? And the reality was that, to my understanding, the... Apollo moon flights were timed to coincide with lunar cycles, and lunar cycles, the that is the cycle of the orbit of the moon, the moon mm -hmm. traveling around the Earth, it happens once roughly every 28 days. Oh, wow. Okay. 
And so, and of course, the moon is also a lot closer. So mm-hmm. that's a factor too. Right. What, so I think if we had powerful enough spacecraft, you could arguably travel to the moon whenever you wanted. But for the purposes of the Apollo program right. and everything being precise and calculating the physics and talking about the first missions to ever go to the moon, for the sake of that program, it was very much time to coincide with certain lunar cycles. And there was even one Apollo astronaut that talked about in an interview, he said they laid us down, we were like strapped into the capsule. He's like, and there's a window directly above you. He's like, they sealed the hatch. And I'm sitting there like checking my instrument panel. And I look up and in this tiny little porthole window in broad daylight, I see the faint image of the moon (laughs) right there. And I thought, this this is probably pretty accurate. Probably Mm -hmm. all the other people have done their jobs very well because we're Right on target. Yeah, right on target. (laughs) So um, the physics of translunar injection, Mm -hmm. you know, this this rocket burn that you have to take to go to the moon are not something that I'm well acquainted with. Right. But basically the moon's 250,000 miles away, whereas Mars at its closest is tens of millions of miles away. A a good metric that people use is uh, they often say Mars is over a hundred times further away than the moon. Gotcha. And so what happens is you have something. So eventually in our YouTube format, I would like to get really cool and awesome animation of planetary orbits to show you guys. But basically it's something we've been used to doing the audio format of the podcast for so long that we're just kind of dipping our toe into the uh, visual format, the, the, the YouTube format, if you will. But it's something called conjunction, and that is that Earth is orbiting around the sun like this, Mars is further away from the sun, and it's orbiting around the sun like this. And so in this this cycle, you have the planets sometimes come into conjunction where they're actually relatively close to each other. So at their furthest apart, Earth and Mars are... I believe something like 200 million miles away. And to give you an idea of those scales, those vast distances, 200 million miles away, it's where if you want to make a phone call, wouldn't even call it a phone call. If you want to send a message, if you Mm -hmm. want to send a text message to the crew that is on Mars saying, hey, how are you doing today? Send it away from the Earth at like the speed of light. Then it could take as long as 20 minutes. Wow. For them to receive it. Mm. And then they will receive it. And if they respond immediately and say, hey, we're doing fine, we're feeling great, then it's going to be another 20 minutes for that signal to traverse that interplanetary mm-hmm. distance. When And this is when they're farthest apart. Sometimes it gets as close as five minutes delay. But even five minutes delay is a long time to yeah. say, like, I'm going to send someone a text message and the earliest I'll receive a reply is five minutes from now. And that's assuming... Ten minutes, really. You d- you oh, yeah. Double it cause Excuse me. Yes. Yes. I messed up the if math there. If they get it and they go... And they just, like, immediately reply back. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that gap in communication, mm-hmm. I think, is something really interesting to think about. Because it means if something goes wrong for a crew that's on Mars or on their way to Mars, mm-hmm. they can't do what the Apollo 13 crew did, which was with almost no yeah. time delay at all was yeah. to be able to say, Houston, we have a problem. The, the problem would have occurred and probably become 
worse if uh, they're yeah. waiting on yeah, Houston and to tell them what to do. Ab- absolutely. And so, and so that's a concern. Well, you hit my communication bullet point. I thought that was important to know what yeah. communication looked like. Just to uh, finish my point, yeah. basically, conjunction, you launch when the Earth and Mars are close to being at their closest points. And then once you get to Mars, they've kind of drifted away from those points. And you need to kind of sit on, you either need to spend a week on the surface of Mars after traveling months in deep space. Mm -hmm. You can spend a week there, gather some rocks, and then hightail it back to Earth as quickly as you can. Or you're stuck there for over a year. Hmm. And in over a year's time, hell, if it takes six months to get there, or if it takes nine months to get there, you'd want to spend a little bit of time on the surface. Right. It's like me suggesting that you and I take a road trip where we're going to be on the road for six hours and when we get there, we'll have a good 30 minutes to, like, grab a bite to eat. But then we got to get back in the car and go back immediately. You would say, Chris, what's the point right. of even taking the road trip to begin right. with? Right. We hope you'll join us next week for the second part of my discussion with my producer, Blake. <laughs>